At this time, children may be dismissed to go to children's church if you are a child and would like to go down. Now's a good time to leave. Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus today. We took a week break so that we could work on our prayer study for the year as well. We've got simultaneous studies going on. And so I hope by year's end that will start to make sense. The first Sunday of the month is reserved for prayer and the other Sundays for the study of the book of Exodus. Um, we cut off our study last time in sort of uh, an uncommon place. Um, generally, preachers, when they preach through Exodus, will preach the whole of chapter 1. And uh, we decided, I decided that we would stop uh, at the end of verse 14 and pick up the rest of the chapter, and we would dedicate a whole other sermon to, chapter, to verse 15 through the end of the chapter. So let's pick up our reading there, and then we'll pray and begin our study. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Father, give us grace to understand this passage well, to make good application to our lives. Father, would you help us to be bold and fear you? Or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We arrive at the fear of you by reading your word and taking it into our lives, applying it to ourselves. And there we find true wisdom. And Lord, may we, like Shifra and Pua, fear you far more than any human, whether low or high. May we look to you, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this sermon, Israel's Iron Ladies. Maybe some of you remember the Israel, Israeli prime minister. I believe she was the fourth prime minister of Israel. Her name was Golda Meir. She was called Israel's Iron Lady. She survived World War II. She lived on a kibbutz and fiercely defended her people. And here are two national heroines of Israel, Shifra and Pua. And we're going to read more 
about them later. But first, I have a picture of a lady on the screen in front of you. I want you to meet Katie McHugh. Katie McHugh, she's a medical doctor. She lives in Indiana, and she's a fierce, she's a fierce proponent, advocate for abortion rights. This was a tweet that she sent out uh, about three weeks ago, Friday, February 17th, 2023. I believe it was February 17th. She said, happy Friday, happy Friday. Abortion care is still legal in Indiana. We're doing everything we can to keep it that way. And then there were a few emojis and hearts that I decided not to put into the PowerPoint because I don't know how to do that. Abortion is a family value. How ironic. Killing an infant in her mother's womb is a family value and a normal part of life. Abortion is normal, common, and isn't going away. The instrument that she's holding there, you might be curious about. You can Google it. I did. It's a vacuum. And after the doctor crushes the child with forceps, the detritus that remains of the child has to be vacuumed out. And that is what is used. And here she is smiling, happy Friday, holding the instrument that's used to suck dead children from their mother's wombs. And she says this is normal and a part of life. Four and a half millennia ago, a nation tried to do something similar. It was the prelude to God doing something bigger and more grand than those people could ever imagine. And we're going to read about that now, but let's get a little context first. Israel and Egypt, for 400 years they were there. God was, of course, blessing them while they were there. They went down just a family, just an extended family. And as we read about earlier in the chapter of Exodus in uh, verses 3 and following, that there was this enormous, exponential, exploding numerical growth, and the writer trips over himself trying to pile term upon term upon term for the massive birth rate that was taking place among the Hebrews. Just so you know, the word Hebrew and the word Israelite are used here synonymously the way that you would use the words Utahan and American synonymously. If you were talking to somebody from America and they said, where are you from? You would probably say, I'm from Utah. But if you were to visit, say, Uganda or China or anywhere else in the world, and they said, where are you from? You would probably say America, right? Well, these words are used in a similar way. And so... When you read the word Hebrew, think more generally. And when you read the word Israelite, think Israelite. But they're sort of used interchangeably in the text that we have in front of us today. Well, at any rate, there's this giant, massive population growth among the Hebrews, among the Israelites. And the Egyptians grow afraid of this. And so they bind these people up in slavery and attempt to hold them down. But you might remember, the more they tried to bottle them up, the more they tried to enslave them, the more productive God made the Israelites. 
babies flowing upon babies. There was this astronomical rate of birth and growth in the nation. And we come to this passage today, Pharaoh has had enough of it. He's tired of seeing these people multiply and multiply, and so he hatches a plan. And this nation is now threatened with extinction. Before we move forward in the text, I need to say a few things. Number one, this is a passage that has been often misunderstood. And the misunderstanding of those details tends to affect our understanding of it in general. Sometimes you can misunderstand a detail, and it doesn't really affect your understanding of the passage that much. But in this case, I found that a sort of popular rendition of the story has influenced our reading of it and created problems for ourselves where there doesn't need to be. So I'm going to tell you a version of this story that might be new to you, but I think is far more accurate to what Moses had intended than sort of the caricature version that is sometimes presented. Make sense? Well, maybe it'll make sense after I'm done, but I think you'll see it in just a minute. Pharaoh wants to wipe the people out. He doesn't want to do it immediately. Pharaoh has a problem at hand. He doesn't want to lose the workforce, but he doesn't want to raise a bunch of soldiers either. So what does he do? What's he to do? What were the options that he had at hand? Well, he could have pulled a Herod and just sent the army in and wiped out the Israelite population. He could have done that. But he knows that he would have lost his workforce. He could have sent the soldiers in just to kill the children, like Herod did, and something else would have happened. The people of Egypt would not have tolerated it. And he would have threatened his own standing. He would have violated the morality of those people. He feared the people. So he has to do something entirely more subtle than that. He has to be sneaky. And so that's why I'm calling what he does a conspiracy. He wants to thin out the Israelite population by reducing the number of males. Now, he realizes that some of the men are going to slip through. And what he's not saying is we're going to wipe them out completely and send the women into the sex trade, which is how many interpreters take this, and I think how many of us have understood it. He could have done that if he wanted to. That's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to slow the numerical growth down keep them as slaves, and keep them subservient. So he hatches a plan that hopefully will accomplish all of those purposes. So what does he do? He summons the Hebrew midwives. He summons the Hebrew midwives. Now, who are these Hebrew midwives? Well, I think many of us, when we've read this story in the past, what we've thought is, is these are Egyptian medical professionals who serve the medical needs of the Hebrew slaves. And that's not true. He's called in Hebrew women who are over Hebrew mothers. 
it would have been culturally offensive for Egyptian mothers or Egyptian midwives to care for Hebrew mothers and vice versa. They didn't interracially, interracially care for each other medically. So he calls in women who are Hebrews. They're Jewish people. They're slaves. Yet they're supported by the government. And it's their job to oversee the medical needs of these mothers. Now let's pause for just a second here and think about our own medical care for having children today. Within our own little church body, I can think of three different medical, perfectly legitimate medical ways our own ladies have had babies. Some have had babies in their homes, some have had them in a like a, a birthing center that's not a hospital, and others have had them in a hospital. Others have had natural childbirth. My wife has to have planned cesareans. And even in our very advanced medical technology, we have a wide variety of methods to see babies come into the world. And Egyptians were no different. Hebrews were no different. And so there was a way to have the children that was unique to them. And the Hebrew midwives, people who were of that nation, would go and help the mothers along, and they were experts in their medical field. Now, Shifra and Pua, these two ladies, were medical professionals. And as I said, they were government-supported, and they were almost certainly over a whole team of other medical professionals. When you run the numbers, you realize that these two were probably over a team of thousands of other midwives. And so when a Hebrew, and we also have known that the Hebrew people were having lots and lots of babies, so this was a busy job. These ladies had risen through the ranks. They were experts in their field. And they were invested in keeping children alive through birth. They'd probably encountered just about every situation you can imagine. Babies that were turned the wrong way. Babies that were, uh, had the cord wrapped around their neck. Babies that were in all sorts of trauma and trial coming out of the womb. These women understood their field and had risen to the top. They were, in this culture, they were probably married, but unable to have children themselves. In fact, that's almost a certainty. This job would have been so busy, the long hours, the late into the night, work, the nature of the work. Most nations, when they employed these Hebrew, when they employed midwives, would, it, would deliberately employ women who didn't have families of their own. It was stock and trade in the ancient world. And so, just to get a picture of who these ladies are. They're highly trained, highly experienced, medical professionals who are over a team of midwives serving their own people, doing everything they can to bring these babies alive into the world. Their names are Shifra and Pua. Now, those names are going to be significant a little bit. Names are significant now, but we'll explain the significance a little bit later. The names mean, Shifra 
means beautiful or dawn. It's the light that you see in the early morning hours, the beautiful glow of orange and purple as it breaks the horizon. Whatever that word is that comes to your mind when you see that, the Hebrews had a word for that, and it was Shifra, and this was her name. Pua, I don't, it doesn't sound quite so nice to say fragrant, does it? I think that's just, it's not quite as pretty as Pua is. Pua, it's a pretty name. It means fragrant in the sense of a citrusy type of fresh spring smell. It's a, it's a, a, a wonderful aromatic um, sense of smell and freshness and like a, a, a sweet breeze almost. This was her name. Refreshing, fragrant wind. It's lovely. Well, Pharaoh has this plan, as I said. He calls Shifra and Pua into his presence. Whether he met with them personally or whether he sent the message through back channels, we're not sure. But either way, he got their attention and he gives them this plan. He probably, this is a bit of speculation, but it stands to reason that he probably offered them great bribes to pull off this plan. And they're to keep it a secret. They're to tell the other midwives to do this and It's a conspiracy, and he'll reward them generously if they'll but do this. It's a national security need. And he's going to grease the wheels, almost certainly so. And he he tells them, he tells them, I want you to do something. Now let's look in our translation, um, verse 16. He says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. You might want to underline that phrase, them on the birth stool. In all honesty, I'm not totally sure why the English Standard Version or the New American Standard or even the NIV translates it this way. Believe it or not, the most literal translation comes complements of the New Living Translation, which is... A paraphrase. And that is found in a footnote. And essentially, the grammar is specific. If you see boy parts, if you see boy parts as opposed to seeing boy girl parts, they're supposed to identify the gender of the child. That's what it means. When you see the gender of the child as the child is being born, then if it is a son, and here's where the grammar gets very specific, you shall murder him. It's the verb kill with the causative kicker on it. It's the word for murder. Hebrew doesn't have tenses. It has themes, intensifiers. It would be terrible English to translate it this way, but here's how it should literally read when you identify that it's a son. You shall cause their death. And here's the plan. In the mother's agony, in the mother's difficulty in delivering children before epidurals and painkillers and the whole nine yards, she has to 
bear that child without anything to dull her pain. And the ordeal is over and she relaxes, but for a moment, if you identify that it's a boy, you shall strangle it and call it a stillborn. Now this wouldn't be terribly unbelievable from the Hebrew perspective. Ancient world estimates are that as many as 33 to 50% of children died in childbirth. In medieval times, that number was over 50%. The Egyptians had figured it out a little bit better than that, and some estimates put it between 25 and 40% of children who die at childbirth. And so, what the Pharaoh wanted was for a generation of children not to have boys. And that would slow down the birth rate of this nation. These medical professionals were to snuff out the life by strangling the child and calling it a stillbirth. It's amazing. Well, Shifra and Pua have a different idea. <laughs> and here we see a little bit of civil disobedience, and that brings us to our next point. In chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, I want us to notice, look at your passages here, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, because the king had wanted this conspiracy, this actually gave Shifra and Pua the opportunity that they needed. But let's go back for just a minute. What was it that motivated these ladies? Well, Moses specifies that it was holy reverence for God, the fear of God. This is a Holy reverence for God. Later in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, Moses appoints leaders who feared God, and here's the next phrase, and would not accept a bribe. The worst thing about the corrupt political system, a corrupt political system, is politicians who accept bribes under the table God says, in my economy, in my nation, leaders, that is an immediate disqualifier. Leaders do not accept bribes. They, rather, they fear God. They know God is watching, and they know God sees in secret. And the one who sees in secret rewards in secret. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear, this reverence, understanding that God sees my thoughts, God sees me from afar, I don't do anything that God doesn't see, that is the beginning of wisdom. You don't go anywhere in life, wisdom-wise, until you begin to realize God sees all. And that's what these women banked on. They banked on it. God sees. And it wasn't an intimidator for them. It was a motivator. And I want us to notice that Moses here does not say that they spared the Hebrew male children because they loved children. Now, I think we'd be hard-pressed not to think that didn't have something to do with it, right? 
we, we have five children. I've spent many days in the, you know, my wife has to have planned cesareans, as I said. We, we spend several days in the hospital with every child. I've spent many days in the hospital with my wife in the baby ward. I don't know what the technical term of it is. I just call it the baby ward. Not once have I met a nurse in the baby ward who doesn't love those babies. That's why they work there. They love those babies. They want to see those babies prosper. And sometimes, if I'm honest, those nurses care a little bit too much about those babies. And, you know, you're like, okay, thank you. I'm the parent. Now, go on. <laughs> we got this. Well... But Moses doesn't list that as a motivation. Deep down in their soul, they reckoned with God. And that's what caused them to act. And so they create a counter-conspiracy. And outright disobedience occurs across the nation. Now, here is where sometimes a misunderstanding of this text can lead to a different conclusion. The version that we're often told is the Hebrew midwives went and delivered the babies, same, same, always as usual. And then when Pharaoh called them into his office to say, why haven't you killed the Hebrew children? They concocted this cockamamie story. And, you, I can, and in the version of this telling, it is funny. I'll admit to you, it's funny to think about. Here you've got these women standing before a male who's never sat in on a birth in his life, and why haven't you killed? Oh, the Hebrew women are vigorous. They give birth before, and they, and they say, how could Pharaoh believe that? Well, that's probably not what happened. It all comes down to this word here, vigorous. The word vigorous that's used here in the text it's actually, this is the only time in the entire Hebrew Bible that the word is used. It's the only time in all of ancient literature that it's used. So it's hard to pin down a definition based on how the nation uses the word because we don't have any other uses of it. But what we do know is the word has in it the word for life. How many of you have watched The Fiddler on the Roof, or listened to the soundtrack, and you know the song, L'chaim, L'chaim to life. Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, several of you. Okay, good, good. Well, the word chayim, L'chaim, that's this word here. It's not, it's not the word, but it contains that word. And what I think has happened here is this. The word can mean active or involved in the sense of liveliness. And so what I think happened is this. The Hebrew women were told to commit this great conspiracy and murder children as they identified that they were men. They got together with the other Hebrew midwives and said this, let us train the Israelite women how to have their own babies. And we instruct them when it's time to give birth, call somebody, but do not call us. We have given you the proper training. Then the Hebrew women were responsible themselves for giving birth to their own children. 
They were active. They were vigorous. If you want to translate the word actively or involved. And so, probably years later, it wasn't weeks later, because it would have taken a while for Pharaoh to learn that, because remember, he was wanting this all to be done on the down low. Suddenly, he's walking around the city one day, and he sees a bunch of two, three-year-old Hebrew boys running around. He thinks, where did all these come from? So he calls Shifra and Pua back into his office, if he had one. Why haven't you done this? And Shifra and Pua say, hey, listen. Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. Egyptian women, they call the midwives immediately, but Hebrew women don't do that. They just have the baby themselves. And by the time we get to the baby, the critical moment of strangling the baby before the mom knows any better is gone. And we can't be there to do it because they're more active. I mean, if you want us to tell them to murder their child, we'll do that. If you want us to require that they call us in so that we can be there to murder the child, we can do that. But in our culture... They just have the babies themselves without calling the midwives. And Pharaoh is sort of forced to accept this explanation because, again, he wanted to keep all this on the down low. Now, was this dishonest? Maybe. Perhaps. I certainly wouldn't call it telling the Pharaoh, whatever it was, whether it's the version I told before of the Hebrew midwives going in and saying, these, these Hebrew women, they're vigorous and they give birth so fast. Or the version I just told you, whichever one it is, it's not totally straightforward with the Pharaoh now, is it? But this is war on the people of God. This Pharaoh is asking these women to violate their oath of preserving life. This Pharaoh is uncalled for, unprovoked, committing hate, uh, committing murder on innocent people and children. And these women whether they thought through the nuances of this or not, adopted a wartime ethic. And we all know that in war, ethics change. For example, if we were to fight a war, and we were, let's say we were to go to war against, let me pick a nation that we, uh, we go to war against um, France, let's say. I don't think we have a beef with France, but let's pretend that we did. Well, France has a couple of different coasts. We can invade from the top via the Atlantic, or we can come up from the bottom via the Mediterranean. Well, let's say we decided we're going to go up through the Mediterranean. Would you expect our president to get on TV and say, okay, everybody, we are definitely attacking through the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so be ready. We're going to pick this one line, and that's where we're going, because I want to be honest and clear 
No, um, that's not, in fact, um, we have whole departments in our military called counterintelligence. What is counterintelligence? Professional lie telling, okay? We're trying to trick the enemy into thinking we're doing something that we're not. There were, in World War II, there were whole squadrons of people who had inflatable tanks. Seriously. They had inflatable tanks and inflatable airplanes. They would go to an area and they would build up this inflatable armada of planes and bombers and tanks just to try to, and they would put them strategically where they knew the German spy planes were flying over. And they'd be like, oh yeah, we're coming over here, be ready. Hoping that the as the plane was flying over, nobody would hit the tank and it would go, you know, to the ground. In a, in a football game, when the quarterback drops back and pretends like he's about to hand the ball off to the running back, before he snaps the ball, he doesn't say, okay, everybody, I'm not actually going to hand the ball to the running back. Okay? I would, I'd hate to be dishonest here. No, it's a fake in games, in war, ethics change. And God apparently had no problem with what these ladies did. For he rewards them. He rewards them. God blesses them. Three times God expresses his goodness here in the passage. And we've learned that three times is a big deal. So God dealt well, verse 20, with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. God dealt well, that's one. The people multiplied and grew very strong, that's two. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, that's number three. The multiplication of the nation continues. Pharaoh can't snuff it out. They're still growing, they're still multiplying. He can't figure it out. And because God was wanting to reward these people, these midwives, these national heroes, heroines, even though they were old, and even though to that point in their lives they were childless and barren and had given up all hope on having children, we're told that God gave them families. And in fact, God says that he gave these women households, meaning that they probably had more than one child in their old age, and those children were also abundant and multiplied. And from these two ladies sprang huge sections of the nation of Israel. Whole households in the sense of large family trees beginning with Shifra and Pua. They feared God. They disobeyed the king's order to murder children. And they prospered in the form of children. Now, did you know that nobody knows the name of this Pharaoh? Nobody. Historians have tried and failed. They've tried to pin down who exactly this guy is. Nobody knows. Can't get to it. Neither the Pharaoh before him, neither the Pharaoh after him. There's a blank space in history. The Pharaoh who issued this decree has a name that is lost to history. But what two names abide forever because of the word of the Lord is set in heaven, it's eternal, it will never pass away, whose names will forever stand but Shifra and Pua. God sees, God remembers, and God rewards. 
Well, Pharaoh is done dealing with Hebrew midwives. And so he comes up with a final solution. And this time, Pharaoh leaves off the subterfuge. He leaves off the conspiracy. And he actually deputizes his entire nation to commit infanticide. He says to all his people, you have the obligation. When you see a Hebrew son that is born, you shall cast that son into the Nile. Now, just for a little irony, who disobeys the king's command in this time? His own daughter. And who does his daughter raise up? Moses. <laughs> the very decree that was meant to wipe out the nation leads to the Pharaoh's demise. What delicious irony Moses writes to us. Isn't it amazing? Well, why did he tell the nation to cast the boys into the Nile? Well, the Pharaoh is a coward. I'm not going to color it any other way. He's a coward. And he is going to hide behind his religion, his false religion. There's a convenience, of course, of disposal. Throw the child into the river, out of sight, out of mind. The river will take care of it. It would accomplish Pharaoh's original intention of thinning out the population. But, more than anything, Pharaoh was shifting the blame from himself to the god Hopi, which was the god of the Nile floods. Hopi is a fat man who sits on a throne with a big tummy. He's lazy. And he occasionally lifts his hand to help the Egyptian people. And so God, so Pharaoh, tells the nation, throw the children into the Nile, and if Hopi decides to let them live, then they will live. We're, we'll just entrust them to the goodness of Hopi and let Hopi work it out. This cowardly Pharaoh is hiding behind a thin theological excuse. But so you know, God took notice. And not only was it the water that brought Moses into his own house, where he educated that man and fed him from his own table. It is through the water that Pharaoh would meet his own death. Shiphrah and Pua feared God. God rewarded them so generously. And Pharaoh did not. Let's draw some lessons from this very quickly. Number one, God delights an ironic vindication. I can't tell you how happy I am to be back studying some of Moses' literature. No writer in the Bible has a better sense of irony than Moses does. All through the book of Genesis, for example, in Genesis, Jacob says, everything is against me. 
Well, actually, Jacob, everything was for you. (laughs) And the story goes on to show that everything was for him, even though here he is all depressed and down. Everything is against me. Moses brings out the irony. And this story, as we move forward, is going to be long on irony. There will be so many little ironic points. And God delights in that. He delights to lift up his servants. He delights to cast down evil rulers. He doesn't always do it. In fact, let me rephrase that. He almost never does it the way we would want him to. But in the end, it's so much better. And Moses has a way of bringing all of that out. Number two, never forget. Never, ever forget. Life is lived before a watching God. Life is lived before a watching God. He sees. He knows. I think the best illustration I've ever heard of this, I'll borrow this one. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're uh, in a bit of a hurry and you uh, come up to the four-way stop across from the Valley Market and the Maverick. And I know none of you good people would ever do this. But some of us, when we get into a little bit of a hurry, will roll through that stop sign. You start to accelerate away because after all, you're in a hurry and you look up and what do you see but the blue lights of a sheriff's truck requesting to pull you over. How many of you are really happy in that moment that you have been seen? (laughs) You play dumb, of course. You say, what's the problem, officer? (laughs) And the officer says, well, you didn't come to a full and complete stop at the stop sign and you realize you're going to be paying a fine of some amount. I don't know what it's up to these days, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds of dollars. You've been caught. And I don't care how many times you've been pulled over, a sense of dread comes into you when you see the lights and you have to pull over. That's fear. Imagine, though, that it's late one night and you're in... uh, downtown Atlanta, where I found myself one time. It was after an Atlanta Braves baseball game that went into extra innings, and it was past one in the morning, and I'd gotten turned around leaving the stadium, and I couldn't find my car. And I was about to turn down a block, and there was a large black gentleman standing at the street corner, and he said, you don't want to go down this street. And I said, okay. He goes, you need to go that way. And I said, okay. And a few minutes later, I saw a police, police lights going off. And I want you to know I felt really good (laughs) when I saw those lights. They weren't coming after me. They were just in the area. And I felt safe, whereas I hadn't before. And do you know what that is? That's fear. It's reverence and respect. Okay, I'm safe. Same situation, but in one case, I was needing help, and in the other case, I was doing wrong. 
we need to learn to cherish the fear of God as something that's a comfort when we're in tight spaces and is a grace when we're not doing right. And God is calling us back. Last, it's good and godly to cry out, how long, O Lord? You know, there was a generation of Hebrew women that had their children underneath the sword of Damocles, knowing that there was an official edict from the king to snuff out any child that was a boy. And from the time they learned they were pregnant, they would worry, is this the time the king gets serious about executing this order, and will I lose this child if it's a boy? That fear, I'm sure, settled in on them. And it is good, it is appropriate to say to the Lord, how long will you let this keep going? How long? And God says that he heard those prayers and in his time reacted and moved. And so I would commend you to Psalm 13 because it tells us what to do in the wake of telling the Lord how long. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Shifra and for Pua, these two Hebrew women who defied the order of the king because they feared you. Lord, I pray that you would raise up here a group of people that fear you and want to live life before you, taking into account all the different points of reverence that will affect our lives. Oh God, please work into us the conviction that you see and even though you see, even though you've seen the worst things that we've done, you forgive. And had the Pharaoh repented of his actions, wanting to snuff out these children, you would have forgiven him. For your mercy is broad and wide. There are some in here who may have prematurely ended the life of a little one. May they know that your forgiveness covers that. You forgive. You're merciful. You're gracious. And may we turn to you in fear and reverence, knowing that you tell us how loving and good and generous you are. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.